Hi, this is Day for Night with Gadi That Switch, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the edgelands and the wilderness. Today's episode is actually a lecture uh, on alternative forms in theater. I don't usually uh, post lectures uh, in this series, but uh, decided to uh, give it a whirl and connect with uh, listeners in a different way, especially those interested in theater. So this is actually a lecture that I um, gave uh, at university and uh, it's uh, I'm putting it here. So that's all. Uh, you'll listen to it, hopefully. You'll not listen to it. It's all good. Uh, but as always, this is about you and I in this theater. You there in the dark, and I here wondering who you are. And for now, this is Day for Night. Hi, this is a lecture on alternative forms of drama. I first want to say, start by saying that I think the word alternative form uh, is, to use the phrase or the word, problematic. <laughs> I think all forms of drama are thought experiments and as such, they may be positing an alternative to conventional established ways of thinking. I think that's the job of theater, the job of dramatic writing, is to actually kind of see the world differently. So in the best of senses, all forms are an alternative. And what I mean by that is that people making things, <laughs> art makers, are interested usually in not being part of an assembly line, but in actually doing the thing that's not like the others, okay? So I find the title alternative forms uh, difficult to parse and probably damaging, I would say. It is the title that is on the syllabus and in the program. Uh, but I just wanted to open up the idea around this uh, to say that, that all forms, in a sense, are alternative. Now, I think what happens is, is that there is work that fits into established modes uh, quite consciously. In a sense, it's trying to ideologically or formally trying to replicate something that already exists. So I think good examples of this tend to be, this is a very generic example, but a lot of action films or the Marvel films, for example, with rare exceptions, are actually, no matter who's in the lead, <laughs> you know, the formula tends to be the same. And on a formal level, that means that the work is not an alternative. Uh, because it's not positing a new way of seeing. It's actually reinforcing an established way of seeing. Sometimes that's good. So there's no judgment around this. Um, but I think that it is an ideological position uh, by an art maker. Sometimes not one of their own choosing. So when you're doing work for hire as a writer, sometimes you're put in a position of having to replicate uh, something that already exists. Uh, and then you have to sort of, I think, be truthful with yourself as an art maker about what that means and why you may be doing that. Sometimes it's about getting paid well. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's just... Uh, the nature of the contract that you're in on a very practical level. So I just want to put that on the table because I think that 
in thinking about alternatives after looking at melodrama and tragedy and comedy, farce and satire and romantic comedy and subversions of all of those uh, as forms of drama, uh, that it's worth, worth considering that coming to the end of thinking about these forms, but certainly not the end of really thinking about them, but the end for now in terms of the coursework, that when we think about alternative, we should be thinking, hopefully, in a more expansive way. I will say that musical drama and musical comedy are definitely forms, and they would actually fall under melodrama, uh, logistically. But it's also a form unto itself, and and I think embracing it in thinking about dramatic writing is really helpful. So today's uh, thoughts, really, it's not really a lecture, but thoughts, I would say, semi-lecture, mini-lecture, <laughs> um, sort of are going to run to different points of view. Uh, and I'm going to be looking at uh, the work of Alan Reed, who I think I've mentioned before, who's a scholar. Um, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Theater in the Expanded Field, Seven Approaches to Performance. And I love this book. I absolutely love this book. And one of the reasons I love about it is that instead of thinking about forms of drama the way we have been, he thinks about seven ways of making theater. And here they are. The first one being prehistorical and archaeological. The second one being pastoral and anthropological. The third one being theological and historical. The fourth one being digital and technological. The fifth one being psychological and legal. The sixth one being social and sensible. And the last one being tactical and critical. So I'll give you time to kind of think through that. Um, so I'm going to read from the introduction book just to kind of frame this a little bit. Probably won't read the whole thing because it's very long, but... Uh, I'll, I'll pick some sections to read just to kind of frame today's thoughts. So this is from the prelim of theater and expanded field. To say what theater is would be to start an argument. To say what performance is, a fight. Or, at the very least, an intense disagreement. Fifty years ago, at the time of this writing, there were brave hearts willing to stake their colors to the mast. Foremost among them was the theater historian and architect Richard Southern, whose book, The Seven Ages of the Theater, from 1962, systematically peeled back the accumulated layers of theatricality, scenery, auditorium, stage, costume, mask, and finally, player and audience, to reduce, raise his subject to a state he called no theater, as in N-O, not N-O-H. In a chapter in that work called The Essence of Theater, a title that might seem incomprehensible to relativists today, unwilling to prescribe value judgments to artistic endeavors, Southern acknowledges the story has complications. Instead of a simple development, there seems to be a succession of intrusions from outside 
upon what would otherwise appear as a self-contained, modest, and not unpopular human act. The act, that is to say, of performing something before a group of other people. In answer to his own question, what is the essence of theater? Southern begins with a useful proposition laid out in poetic form. Any work of art is an address in some form by an individual to a number of people. In the realm of theater, this implies that something arises in the time span of the event from the manner of such an address, and the meaning of theater is embedded and it's acting out. Southern goes on to qualify this definition. An address through doing, however it is prepared, depends on a concentrated effort on one particular occasion. Moreover, your audience is limited to the group present on that occasion. A creation, then, you can perfect in solitude before the people see it. But an action is done before them once and is finished. The only chance of perfecting it, if it has failed, lies in an opportunity of trying it all over again on another occasion. Thirty years before, the cultural theorist Peggy Phelan, that's P-H-E-L-A-N, if you don't know Phelan's work, was finessing this ontology of performance in her formative collection of essays, Unmarked, from 1993, where she defined what it is that gives such a peculiarly live, unrepeatable character to performance as distinct to other acts. Southern was not willing only to characterize theater's liveness, but to wager that the purpose of such an act was to achieve it in a way that accorded with a standard of some sort. Half a century on, there would be few performance studies scholars who would invest in such qualifying standards of attainment and the metaphysics of perfection has long since lost its virtuous luster. Quote, against being right, the epigraph to Phelan's book, in the meantime, became more of an epitaph to the virtuosity of performances forebears and counterparts, theater, ballet, and opera. But in the seven ages of the theater, Richard Southern seeks ways of thinking about space for the theater of his contemporary moment, 1960s. And there are more reasons than nostalgic, talismanic ones to dedicate part of this preliminary to reflecting on that moment here as we mark its passing. It was not a parochial development. While Southern was reflecting on histories of theater in an internationalist way, Styron, William Styron, was reading that first literary treatment in Revolutionary Road of theater's failure to cohere community. Richard Schechner at Tulane University in 1962 began to mobilize the term performance to distinguish a phase of anti-illusion from this longer history of theater. He did this principally and in the first instance by taking up of an existent journal, the Tulane Drama Review, and turning it into the Drama Review, TDR, which would have a wholly distinct orientation to what had gone before. Fifty further years of this history and the new category of performance, drawing its lineage from the gamut of live arts, performance art, and perhaps, inevitably, performance studies, has usurped and replaced the previous position that theater held for a new audience embarking on the study of a very old subject. The canonization of performance as all that is good, all that is efficacious in terms of the arts, all that is challenging, transgressive, spontaneous, live, free, fluid, real, explicit, with the sexual energy of everything from improvisation of the jazz era to burlesque, via the dynamics of a vast range of practice things, from abstract expressionism to relational participation, 
was undoubtedly a necessary step to unsettle all that was normative and the orthodoxies of a dominant culture. But, as Thomas has said, or is said to have said, of a Barnett Newman exhibition in 1959, quote, aesthetics is for the artist and ornithology as ornithology is for the birds. From this enigmatic observation, we can surmise that the integration of a form within any culture, for example, the history of Western art, in quotes, returns us to the inevitable problem of the normative, the dominant, the hegemonic, and the canonical. By way of bearing this out, a gestalt shift occurred throughout the 1980s and 90s from the universities of North America, Europe, Asia, Australia, and New Zealand began to teach performance studies, and the, quote, shock of the new turned into perhaps unintended, but for nevertheless omnipresent lionization of anti-illusion. Here, a ragged movement that had begun as an anti-paradigm found itself as paradigmatic as the next discipline, or so some of its most innovative chroniclers believed. So what is Reed saying there? He's talking about the rise of performance studies, viable form, and the idea of the anti-work that is anti-illusionary, right? Anti-mimetic uh, as being codified, right? So that in that process of celebrating work that was anti-illusion, which often falls under alternative, which is why I bring this up, actually in itself became uh, a form uh, and, and something that, that sort of had its own conventions and rules around it. So in a way, it was sort of defeating itself. I'm going to continue from Reed uh, here and probably jump through A little bit because I think that just to just to make this a little more this is a lot okay uh, ba, 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 ba. so here's something I'm just going to jump forward in this introduction in the now unfashionable spirit of binary separation and very much in the spirit of the of here as we continue discussing we could perhaps start with dissensus rather than consensus to see what happens when we place one term in tension with the other. For example, theater versus performance. Here's a, a very simple way of looking at this. Under theater would go the following words. Linearity, character, acting, invention, potency. Under performance would go the second, the next words in opposition. Instead of linearity, simultaneity. Instead of character, autobiography. Instead of acting, authenticity. Instead of invention, revelation. Instead of potency, impotency. Laying them out in this presumptuous way immediately raises some questions that we might otherwise mistakenly think have been answered as to their relations or indeed their formal properties, or further and more troublingly, their infinite mutability as a terms of reference, their ability to be anything to anyone, despite the generations of classificatory work conducted upon them by many. At the very least, it is impossible to imagine a we agreeing to which identity belongs in which column. Reed continues, My pleasure in theater of the expanded field, as I have pointed, would it be the precise way in which the order and history of the left, and the left here is um, performance, is irritated and disturbed by the electricity of the right. 
So sorry, the order and history of the left being theater is irritated and disturbed by the electricity of the right, which is performance. So how theater and performance are kind of speaking to each other. The diagrammatic aspect of this work maintains this simple classificatory system and outlines where in each scene performance is operating at this level of itinerant irritant. It is not quite that this irritant carries the shock of the new, to coin Robert Hughes' famous phrase in art, but rather in the spirit of the philosopher Alain Bedieu, simple exhortation in his thesis on theater, for us to consider how it is we become struck by something on the stage through performance, how that striking quality of performance occurs to us as a charge. And I would add that that's an electrical charge that Reed is talking about. Picturing this metaphysical charge might appear somewhat foolhardy, but it does at least interrupt the chameleon prose that can be coined to cover all theatrical conditions without committing to any. John Mackenzie, J-O-N, Mackenzie, M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E, wrote about this charge somewhat parodically in the final pages of his work, Perform or Else, from 2001, in which his anti-hero, Jane Challenger, becomes more and more agitated at her lectern, lectern towards the end of her interplanetary keynote speech. This is from John Mackenzie's Perform or Else. Quote, From somewhere near the back of the hall, a deep blue light engulfs the space while waves of feedback spew out from the lecture machine. There's a slight pause, then a brilliant explosion, a blinding yet muted jolt, a chilling blast of the outside. End quote. It is perhaps no surprise in our material and studiedly materialist world that in the comprehensive literature dedicated to John Mackenzie's formative work, there is a complete absence of commentary on a passage such as this that so engagingly captures the metaphysical quality of performance and its expanded field. I'm going to repeat the Mackenzie quote just so that you can think about it. A deep blue light engulfs the space while waves of feedback spew out from the lecture machine. There's a slight pause, a brilliant explosion, a blinding yet muted jolt, a chilling blast of the outside. Excuse me. Where theater might be perceived as an anachronistic form that is more or less mechanical in its means of production, performance, in the manner in which it has so far been configured, is thus charged with a drive towards modernity, a deep blue light engulfing the space, as John Mackenzie puts it. Performance continues to insist on the event in the here and now, whereas theater may, seen, may be seen, to all intents and purposes, as an abandoned practice, one which relies upon rehabilitation to bring it into the current, the circuit, the field of operations, which we ascribe as of this contemporary moment. Directing is one relatively recent, century-and-a-half-long manifestation of this requirement that theater finds itself again anew in each epoch, with which it has such a complicated and sometimes antiquated relations. Adaptation is another. While the very word revival, rarely used to describe performance, but commonly used to signal the return of a familiar text or production in the theater, is a mark of such continuous recovery of that which is otherwise abandoned. No wonder there is so much discussion as to the merit of archives in the theater field. I will return to the rather contentious idea that theater might be perceived as an abandoned practice, not least of all given its recent soaring box office takings the last year or so, after outlining some of the implications of the enforced separation in the columns that the binary columns that suggest theater is versus performance. Suffice to say that abandonment does not imply for a moment lack of care. This work is precisely titled 
as it is in honor of theaters, Lazarus-like resistance to extinction. Such a column celebration between theater and performance are for the purposes of convenience or clarity and a willingness to offer diagrammatic representations of the ethereal and enigmatic. The theater stage must, to even the most sympathetic eye in the 21st century, must appear something of an anachronism. Performance, on the other hand, does, despite its institutional establishment, appear to continue to aggravate all those people who would prefer your culture reheated. It seems to confuse, celebrate, and chastise in its variety and persistence. It is that persistence I would like to characterize here by way of suggesting that a genetic makeup that is composed partly of performance is a makeup with definable characteristics, which like other DNA elements can be identified both diagrammatically in theory and also in practice, as witnessed over the last decades since Richard Southern offered us his seven ages of theater. The ubiquity of performance, measures within a diverse range of disciplines and fields, is no longer contested, if it ever was. Certainly since John McKenzie's Performer Else, there can be few in the field who are not familiar with the larger claims being made for performance now. But the precise definition of the role of practices in these operations remains vague and largely unaccounted for. This is partly because most research into practices, such as that conducted in theater itself, but also much more widely across the material and social sciences, has been disproportionately interested in those practices which have, quote, survived, continued, or been successful in impacting upon contemporary operational modes. This is understandable, given that one of the principal interests of historical recovery is a better understanding of how such pasts shape our presence. Such inquiry informs the vast majority of current research across disciplines, especially in areas of practice as research, known as theater studies, for whom the reinvigoration of art forms now is a declared intention of many of the best and most relevant researchers in the field. The idea of theater as a once abandoned practice, now invested with revitalized hope, is perhaps unusual, but not new. It simply pushes to a somewhat extreme limit the well-known phrase Schechner offered some years ago and was noted earlier. If on the one hand theater can be conceived as an abandoned practice, then it should not go without saying in this age of effects and audience responsiveness that there will, with abandonment, be a parallel set of practices to consider, that of endangered uses. I would propose that it is precisely here that community is brought into question. Once again, and against the vague prognosis of successive theoretical frames from postmodernity to cosmopolitanism, including the rampant individualism of much performance theory and practice. I attest that the diversity in those cultures being described is threatened by conformity and not plurality.
Theater in the expanded field continues a similar line of inquiry to those described by Southern and Krauss, both concerning themselves with spatial mode of understanding an old discipline extended into a multifaceted modern world. The motive of finding an equivalent expanded field for theater is to expose the establishment and architecture of theater to a process whereby, as Karl Marx said of modernity's force, all that is solid melts to air. And the Presidium March and Red Curtains are seen for what they are, a fanfare around the illusion of classical form. We should step outside the performance studies frame to view theater and its base theatricality, abandonment and all, and performance, its irritating and irritable other, as braided like a Mobius strip in 20th and 21st centuries cultural production. To do so would be to edge closer to the sort of ground of courage by Beth Hoffman in her essay, Radicalism and Theater and Genealogies of Live Art. But beyond this encouragement, two rather different objects of cultural interest invite us to think not just in the theater, but also through the theater. How are we to engage with such a form of cultural production as a popular context for this book? The image of a known carrier, be it the shape of a soap opera or an opera stage, is electrified by the live action of unscripted players or the confrontation of physicality of those who perform. Imagine finding drawings, diagrams, spatial or physical forms other than words to convey such a constellation of forces. The second invitation is to consider these relations between performance and theater coming from our own experience, yours as a reader, mine as a writer of their relations over the same period, half a century of discussion. So it's a little excerpt from Theater in the Expanded Field by Alan Reed. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is because although he's positioning theater versus performance, I think the ideas around what constitute um, alternative, since that's the subject of the day, of this lecture is really just around looking at work that, let's say, you're thinking about writing a tragedy, you write an anti-tragedy. You're thinking of writing about a melodrama, you write a melodrama that's mashed up with a screwball comedy that's mashed up with, right? So it's like looking at forms that are in conversation with existing forms, right? I think art, art making is in conversation with prior art making. That's just a given. I don't care <laughs> how much you think everything is wrong from, I don't know, the head of Medusa or the head of Zeus, um, but you're really just in a stream of tradition, right? And different kinds of traditions, um, both from, you know, from the West, from the East, uh, from the larger sense of the Americas and so forth. So I think, uh, from Africa, from many countries, right? So there are different ways of thinking about how people think about performance um, and how they think about the theatrical. And I'm using the word theatrical to think about dramatic. And I'm using the word dramatic to think about dramatic writing. Uh, and so it's just worth bearing in mind that even forms that are, quote, alternative, are in response to something. A lot of the work that happened, so I'll give an example. So a lot of the work that happened in the absurdist movement was a direct response to 
trying to contest, right? Something that existed before. Realism and naturalism as forms were contesting uh, classical tragedy in the main, right? Shifting its focus, thinking about how it could be for the people, etc. And I think that that's something that's always evolving in the work um, and worth thinking about. The other uh, thing I wanted to sort of put in the put in the lecture is um, some words from. Oh, great Chris Good, who I think is someone I've mentioned in the past. And this is from a tremendous, just tremendous book. Really one of those books where you read every page and you're taking notes. Uh, it's a book called The Forest and the Field, Changing Theater and a Changing World. And, and I, you know, I've known Chris for a long time, and I would say that he probably thinks of this book as a kind of the end of one journey of his practice uh, and thinking about theater and performance um, and maybe and maybe the work he's making now post this book, this book is fairly recent, maybe two years ago, um, this kind of a step away from, from some of the thoughts in this book. But it's a compendium of him thinking through ideas around performance and performativity. Uh, and so what I'll, what I'll start with doing is I'm just gonna read you, uh, first of all, the titles of the chapters. Uh, the first one is on space and place. The ne next one is on the naked and the nude. Next one is on signal and noise, my favorite chapter, by the way. Uh, I quote from this chapter a lot. Uh, and the fourth chapter, uh, The Forest and the Field. And the fifth one is called Changing the World. Um, so I'm, I am going to, again, sort of read some material from the front of this uh, book, just to kind of contextualize the idea of the alternative and thinking through alternate, alternative things. So here's how uh, the book begins, by Chris Good, The Forest and the Field. This is a story about us, about you and me, about how and where we might think about who we are to each other, about a bigger us and how and where we meet, about the big us and the little us, the two of us specifically, and what we might want. I wonder where you are. I wonder how you're doing. I wonder what it's like being you. Let's see how the story starts. Who are we going to be to each other now? This book about theater begins with another book about theater. Not long ago, a brilliant director, Katie Mitchell, wrote a book called The Director's Craft. And if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. By the time I picked up the director's craft, I'd already been a director and maker of theater in other ways for well over a decade. And I'm quoting Chris here. But never having trained as a director and never having assisted more experienced directors, I still secretly felt there were huge, huge gaps in my knowledge. So I bought this book by Katie Mitchell in the hope that I would plug those gaps. And to some extent it has, though I still feel the anxiety of not being quite proper. But I nearly didn't get as far as the main body of Mitchell's text. I almost got snagged by something in the foreword that was written by Nicholas Heitner. Heitner introduces the book by noting how Mitchell, quote, rigorously insists on the practical necessities, end quote. In making this point, Heitner contrasts his description with some of the other kinds of books that the director's craft might have been, but isn't. In particular, he says, there are many inspirational books about the purpose of theater. End quote. 
I can't think of all that many, actually. But that wasn't what bothered me about the distinction that Heitner seems to want, be wanting to make. This is not, he seems, this is not, he seems to be saying, a manifesto. Don't go in there expecting a call to arms. Don't hope for intense and passionate rhetorical frights. On the contrary, here only, thank goodness, is what is rigorous and practical. Reading Mitchell's Nuts and Bolts books, it's obvious what Heitner means, but his account is misleading. Every handbook, every user's manual, especially on a subject like theater, where so much is subjective and intangible, is also implicitly, perhaps, but incontrovertibly, a manifesto. Every proposed model of how things ought to be done is loaded with information about the purpose of theater, but the information is rendered invisibly between the lines, like adware downloading silently behind a dodgy computer application. Every methodological tenant has its ideological payload, not merely unacknowledged, but actively disclaimed. What I hope to describe is a structure that can be thought, put to thoughtful use. An important element in that structure is an alertness around the ways in which images, especially those constructed in language, can encode ideological positions without their users necessarily being aware that they are doing so. Images which contrast the central and the marginal, for example, are prevalent in our everyday discussion both around theater and around society. Both have fringes, for a start. Likewise, the normative is set against the extreme case in ways that necessarily assume too much about where we start from and who we are in the first place, most perniciously of all. The establishment of some positions can often involve a claim to neutrality. The case of Heitner seeking to present Mitchell as somehow transcending ideology, avoiding it through the application of rigor, recalls in some ways a long-standing contro controversy arounding, arising sorry, from the difficulty of mapping the world onto a two-dimensional plane. We are so accustomed to imagining the world looking like the familiar Mercator projection that it is very hard to comprehend the degree of distortion that Mercator installs at the core for cultural perceptions. In a sequence from The West Wing, White House Press Secretary C.J. Craig is visited by the fictional Organization of Cartographers for Social Equality, who demonstrate how Mercator's Eurocentric bias, so I'm going to spell Mercator for you, M-E-R, C-A-T-O-R. How Mercator's Eurocentric bias, which also favors North America, makes that projection a woefully unreliable guide to the actual proportional relationship of land areas. What's more, they suggest, the bias is compounded by placing the Northern Hemisphere at the top of the map and the Southern at the bottom, with all the associations of power and prestige the top and bottom connote. But wait! The character of C.J. Craig says, where else could you put the Northern Hemisphere but on top? The socially concerned cartographer clicks his remote for the next slide, and there on the screen is C.J.'s answer, the world turned upside down. The question towards which this book makes its way is the one that lies in wait for any theater maker who dares to profess some concerted political ends for their practice. A question asked frequently by skeptics, seldom by those who hear within it a promise rather than an accusation, namely, can theater change the world? It appears usually to be a trap. The idea such a claim might be made on behalf of theater is assumed to be ridiculous, and consequently anyone making it is easily taken to be ridiculous too. Yet if theater cannot seriously hope to change the world, it quickly comes to be seen as ridiculous itself, an act whose pretensions to significance, should it dare to essay them, are everywhere and always overwhelmed by futility. 
One not wholly evasive response that I and others will sometimes make to this terrible question, can theater change the world, is one based in personal testimony. Theater, we say, has certainly changed us. We can muster some anecdotal evidence to support this assertion, and it at least holds the question ajar for a while, because if we could be changed by theater, maybe everyone and anyone can. Great and fondly missed theatrical troublemaker and mind expander Ken Campbell <clears throat> said he was prepared to suppose everything. For that reason, I want to do what I can to describe the three basic suppositions that I'd invite you to sit out with. No reader need fully believe even these first principles, but so as not to waste your time, here we go. The first is that theater is worth taking seriously and that one way of taking it seriously is to think about it. If with my first assumption, thinking about theater is a good thing, I am preaching to the choir. My second may require more of a leap of faith. An otherwise unspoken principle which ignore, underscores the argument is that theater should be as much like itself as possible. I think I can only explain what I mean by recourse once again to personal experience. At about the time that I was starting out writing professionally in the mid-90s, Theater was being pronounced dead or dying, as it almost always is or has been from some quarter. Normally, the moribundity is evidenced through a more or less specious connection between being drawn between dwindling audience numbers or the underrepresentation of certain demographics in the composition of audiences, and a concomitant increase in the popularity of some other cultural pastime or lifestyle choice. And the inference is drawn that in order to survive, theater must make itself over so as to more closely resemble whatever the popular thing is at the moment. So, for example, at the point that I was beginning to think seriously about theater, there was from some quarters an urging that in order to secure its continued relevance, theater should be more like club culture, because clubs were full of young people spending money, and theaters were not. My instinctive resistance to this line of thought, theater should be more like clubbing or television or the internet, in order to appeal to a wider constituency, expresses itself in an obvious and clear-cut rejoinder. In order to maximize its appeal, theater should actually be less like other, culture form, other cultural forms and more like itself. The problem that this position acknowledges is, in part, that theater can only ever be a bit like those things, other things. Theater is already too much like television, for example, but also not enough. It concentrates on modes of linear storytelling and varieties of psychological realism that TV does brilliantly. Partly TV does those things because it also has a syntax of framing and cutting and mobility of different kinds of camera movement that allow the viewer's attention to be very specifically directed, of shots that can instantly create intimacies and disconnects at once more subtle and more assertive than anything can be achieved on stage even when theater consciously mimics that grammar and maybe even incorporates screens and live video feeds into its presentational apparatus. The difficulty with identifying what it is that distinguishes theater as opposed to any other format or platform is that if any particular quality, if any particular quality does, then it's surely its hybridity. Asking theater to be more like itself brings to mind Caroline Bergvall's poem, More Pets, which starts out by setting out a speculative 
yearning for. And this is quoting Caroline Bergwall's poem. Bergwall is B-E-R-G-B-A-L-L. Poem, more, more pets. A more cat, a more dog dog, a more horse, a more rat, a more canary, a more snake, a more turtle cat, a more turtle, more cat dog, a more dog, more cat horse, a more dog, less horse, less cat rat. A less plus, not rat, mollipin, dogless, horse cheval not, a plus not, not not, not rat, goldfish, can can canary, etc. This tendency toward multiplicity of language, polyphony of voice, and polymorphism of image and relation seems paradoxically, distinctively theatrical. And its insistence on the complexity of meaning, generation, and the fluency of play. A more theater to borrow Bergwald's formulation, is surely more compendious, more expansive, more connective. Furthermore, the problematic nature of this proposition is compounded by the third assumption that I want to bring into play, that another part of theater's distinctiveness is his liveness. To the extent that that is true, it follows that theater cannot always be the same, that it changes not or not solely through the efforts of innovating artists or in response to the pressure of audiences' shifting tastes and currents of fashion, but in response and by contradiction to its social, cultural, and political environment. What it means now to put a play on, to stage an event, to make a piece of theater, is not what it meant five, let alone fifty years ago. What it meant for Christopher Marlowe to be a playwright is not what it means now for, say, Inua Ellums to write for theater. What it meant for someone like Howard Britton to work as a playwright in the 1970s is vastly different to what it means now, for reasons that extend far beyond whatever might have changed in his personal and professional circumstances. Aside from and lurking beneath these three operating principles, which we might combine into a single statement of intent, something like, it is worth thinking carefully about what theater distinctively is right now. There is a final set of assumptions we should name before we embark on our journey together. We quickly run, we quickly run into feedback problems in trying to say what theater is. At a point in time when the range of practices and approaches that might be considered theater is broader and more diverse than ever before. A situation that is variously seen from different perspectives as the happy pluralism of a broad church, or as a battleground on which certain values are to be defended and promoted in competition for a finite pool of producing resources and media coverage, or as a variegated territory in which only one or two small sectors might, probably, might properly be considered to qualify for the Appalachian Theater. It is probably true that the default liberal position is the wish to be as inclusive as possible. Whoever says they are making theater is making theater, whether or not their work sits comfort comfortably within our priorities. But I dare say many makers will recognize the feelings of panic and dismay that at some point may have seized them when they know that they are discussing their work with someone who is orienting themselves in the conversation by means of reference points that are painfully out of sync whether it's a family member saying they've only seen Mamma Mia or Starlight Express, or the bloodletting performance artist whose immediate response to the very idea of theater is an open disdain colored by frustratingly outmoded visions of decrepit velvet curtains being laboriously hoisted over a presidium arch stage and posh people talking inconsequentially, inconsequentially, sorry, about their tedious heterosexual entanglements behind a pristine, invisible wall. It can be similarly painful, perhaps even more so, when visual artists working with performance, such as Marina Abramovich, express their contempt for and revulsion at the very idea of theater. Here is Abramovich being quoted in 2010 in an interview. This is what I think. To be a performance artist, you have to hate theater. Theater is fake. 
Theater is a black box. You pay for a ticket and you sit in the dark and see somebody playing somebody else's life. The knife isn't real. The blood is not real. And the emotions are not real. Performance is just the opposite. The knife is real. The blood is real. And the emotions are real. It's a very different concept. It's about true reality. I find this hard to take for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, the binary performance versus theater is surely untenable, as is real versus fake. Both the theater maker and performance artist are concerned with staging constructed events in which there is some degree of tension between the ways in which that event is real and the ways in which it is, if not fake exactly, and fictive or speculatively manufactured. Second, the version of theater she described is partial at best, and insofar as it describes something that actually occurs, I probably dislike that kind of theater as much as she does. Thirdly, however I might on any given day choose to define or describe theater, I think I would always want it to be able to include works such as Abramovich's The Artist is Present. So, um, I know it's a lot. We're almost at an hour. Um, so what do I want to say about alternative form forms is that they are alternative. But I think thinking through ideas that are set up, I would say binary oppositions that are set up between theater and performance, are useful ways of thinking about how uh, artists tend to make work um, that are described by others as alternative. Uh, it's usually in reaction to, again, something that's established. It's usually in reaction to also other works of art. And I think that sometimes it's something that gets overlooked in all of this, is that not only are we making work in the stream of history, but we're also making work in specific streams of history. Um, and artists tend to uh, reference other artworks and their stuff that they make, whether it's work that's been influential or it's or it's work that that angers them or it's work that they have problems with or you know whatever it may be. Um, so I think thinking that way, just as uh, art makers, can be useful, especially in terms of thinking about dramatic writing. One of the things that we don't talk about enough in terms of form, it's actually just diction and syntax and how different writers use spoken language uh, to communicate their ideas, but also to communicate images. And I think it's worth thinking about and bearing in mind that one thing is that language is not always uh, merely functional, that uh, language has its own drive and purpose, and that language is action. Spoken language is action. I think sometimes that gets uh, forgotten. <laughs> um, and I think worth bringing back into the fray. If you're working in the English language, then you're dealing with conventions historically at a given time around what certain words mean. If you're using slang, if you're using more formal language, spoken language, what is the rhetoric? Uh, that is being deployed in a given piece, how many different tonal registers are being deployed, and to what extent, and to what, to what ends, to what ends. So not all work is in the vernacular, for instance. I think that there's a default assumption that all contemporary work is uh, desiring to be written in the vernacular, uh, but actually not all dramatic writers want to work that way. So something to bear in mind as well in terms of thinking about quote, alternatives. Um, some work is purely physical, uh, does not privilege language as its means of communicating, and so that's worth thinking about as well, right? Um, so all to say is that, you know, as you embark on your journeys, 
is to bear in mind that you're always probably at some level game going to be creating an alternative to what exists, uh, but also being in conversation with what exists. And, and the more that you know about what's out there um, and what finds you, you know, Kate Tempest, the rapper and poet, novelist, talks a lot about how work finds you as an artist, so that sometimes something's on a syllabus or is assigned to you and it's dutiful, right? But, and sometimes that work is incredibly impactful. Um, but there's nothing like the work that finds you, right? The work that you feel you've discovered, even though it's been around for hundreds of years or 10 years or even two years, right? So there's something about, so I'm going to give you the, a visual equivalent to this, which is, let's say you're kind of online and you're browsing and the algorithm tells you to look to this because, oh, if you like this item, you'll like this other item. But what happens if you go against that? What if you just really truly browse? Um, you may discover something that finds you that you didn't know you needed in your life, right? And I think art, art, the instigation of art often comes from that. It comes from that place where you just go, this is for me. This is speaking to me now. And that's the power of art, right? That somebody somewhere in whatever century made something and is speaking to you. So all art is conversation at some level. And I hope that in thinking about alternative forms, such as they are, that you think about what kind of conversations uh, art makers want to make when they're saying no or maybe yes to pre-existing historical forms because that's all that is that there is including artists that are making like say contemporary tragedies thinking about the ancient greeks that's just a way of thinking about an alternative but it's also engaging with an older form from the past so that's the lecture thanks for listening